I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Well, are you one of the people who had their Kia or Hyundai stolen around Milwaukee over the last couple of years? Joining us is one of the attorneys who's been involved in a lawsuit, which just resulted in a $200 million settlement. James Martin is here from the law firm of Barton and Surjak. And Jim, starting out, I just want to get some background about you. Now, you're not originally from this area. Uh, no, I'm not, Libby. I actually grew up on the East Coast, right outside Washington, D.C. I was born and raised out there. And ultimately went to undergrad at University of Colorado, realized that I didn't want to live in a huge, giant city and had been to Milwaukee before, really liked it, was familiar with Marquette, thanks to Dwayne Wade. And they had a sports law program, which I was interested in, but ultimately found myself kind of gravitating towards litigation. And so I met my wife in law school and her family lives here. And so the rest is kind of history. I've been here ever since. And this year will be the, I think, 18 years where I've lived longer in Wisconsin than I've lived anywhere else in my entire life. So, All right, let's talk a little bit about how you got involved in this Kia Hyundai lawsuit. Obviously, a lot of people in this area were affected. Mm -hmm. I know people personally who had their cars stolen, and it was a traumatic event for them. But when did this first get on your personal radar? It was about May of 2021, so a little over two years ago. Some friends of the firm had gotten their car stolen. And I'll admit, I don't watch much of the local news. We had you know, two kids at the time, now three kids at home. So that's kind of chaos the minute I get home. But I heard about this and you start seeing the statistics and it were staggering that two thirds of all cars being stolen in Milwaukee and the Milwaukee area were Kias and Hyundais. And on top of that, thefts of Kias and Hyundais alone were up like 2,500%. And I thought it was a typo at first. So the case really started no different than kind of what we do in any case where you have a problem and you start trying to diagnose, well, what is it? What's causing this issue? What is the tension back and forth? And the first question that I had was, well, why Kia and Hyundai? I knew they were both Korean car manufacturers. And what we learned was that the corporate parents in Seoul, Korea, Hyundai is the largest shareholder of Kia. And they have a synergy here in America. They have a joint design center that's known as Hatchy, the Hyundai America Technical Center. And so that is why the parts on many of the vehicles are the same. And so why you had two seemingly different car manufacturers both getting stolen because they're designed and engineered the same way. So once we figured that out, then it was a question of why are they getting stolen? And that's when we looked into both the mechanics of the vehicle. I had my uh, associate at, at the time, Josh, he went down to the junkyard and bought two steering columns of Kias and Hondas to figure out exactly what it was. And we tried to reverse engineer the specific problem. And also what was publicly available through NHTSA, which is the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, there's a wealth of material. I got stuck in a wormhole on NHTSA's website learning about anti-theft technology. And what we came to learn in particular was that there was a device that's called an immobilizer. And an immobilizer is a technology that 
essentially makes it so that if you don't have the correct key to the vehicle, the, the engine won't even start, dumbing it down significantly. But that's essentially how it works. And it's been mandated by the European Union since 2001. It's been Canada as well and Australia. And so there was a push to mandate a mobilizer technology in the United States as well to kind of conform uh, the NHTSA's requirements with that of the European Union and other places where these cars are sold. And NHTSA said, look, we can't because NHTSA's charge is to create, amongst many things, but they oversee the promulgation and enforcement of what are called federal motor vehicle safety standards. Okay. And so those safety standards, which are quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, minimum performance standards. Okay. And so they don't have the ability to mandate design criteria. They can just say these are the minimum performance requirements that something like an anti-theft measure is supposed to have or that your light bulbs are supposed to be this many lumens, right? So they're bright enough when you're driving down the street. And so NHTSA said we can't mandate a mobilizer technology because our minimum performance requirement for anti-theft devices, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 114, doesn't allow us to say you have to have this. That said, we recognize its utility. And so we're going to incentivize manufacturers to install these by allowing them to – there's another anti-theft statute. And there's something called the parts marking requirement. So you know your VIN on your vehicle? Sure. Your VIN that's you know in the dash of your vehicle that you see is also on the doors and on your engine block and on your transmission. And the reason it's there is and because – And it's like under the carpet. Exactly. It's and the reason it's there is because if someone steals your car and they take it to a chop shop, They want to be able to track and trace the parts, okay? And so NHTSA said, look, the parts marking requirement is mandated across all, you know, you know, consumer automobiles that are sold in the United States. If you take the steps to install this immobilizer technology that we view as, you know, equal to or better than the effectiveness of the parts marking requirement, you don't need to comply with the cost of undergoing the parts marking requirement and having this, you know, your the individual VIN stamped on all these parts. Virtually every other manufacturer followed suit except Kia and Hyundai. And that is really once we realize what the mechanic so A, you don't have an immobilizer, okay? But B, the mechanical design of the ignition assembly system makes it so that you can have a 12-year-old steal a car in a matter of a minute. And that was really when we said This is a really, really big problem. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I said, tell me that I'm wrong in how I figure this out. And that's when our expert looked at it and said, oh, you're not crazy. This is a huge problem. James Barton tells us how a couple of attorneys were able to figure out the flaws in a steering column. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with attorney James Barton. Let's find out how a couple of attorneys were able to uncover what the flaw was. I want to go back. You said that your associate, Josh, went to the junkyard. He did. Got those two steering columns. Yep. How involved were the two of you in looking at it? Did you hire a mechanic to go through it and show it to you? What did you discover as you were looking at those? I have to be a little bit careful because while it's in the... I think it's in the public record now based on everything that's been, you know, everything that's happened since we filed our lawsuit. Our original lawsuit was under seal. But suffice it to say, we figured it out 
But I'm just not just the two of you. Just the two of us. And, I mean, and you're not like mechanics. Or no, anything no, like not that. by okay. trade. So and, you were able to look at it and figure out what the deal was. Yeah, within a few minutes. And again, I'm not an engineer. I'm not that. My wife will be the first person to tell you I'm not like a handy guy. If I, I once unclogged my dishwasher and that's like my claim to fame of being Bob Vila at the house like I'm not good at this stuff at all which is a problem though because if I could figure it out in a few minutes right it explained why this was an issue and so from there we went out and we located and hired an expert and I said tell me I'm crazy tell me that I'm wrong in how I figure this out and that's when our expert looked at it and said no you're not crazy this is a huge problem and that is really what served as the genesis to us putting together the complaint. But what really kind of pushed me over the edge is that you might recall seeing this, and there's probably a TMJ4 article on this, that in mid-June of 2021, there was a kid that steals one of these cars, and he gets in a high-speed chase with the cops, and he's going 90 miles an hour down Good Hope Road into oncoming traffic. And he smokes another car, killed himself, and injured the teenagers that were in the other vehicle, just head-on collision. And it's all on police dash cam footage. And I saw that, and it really kind of rattled me because my nanny lives out west, and she takes Good Hope Road in to our house every day because we're all the way on the east end of Good Hope Road. And oftentimes, if she's taking our kids somewhere, they'll be in the car and I'm sitting there and I came home and I told my wife, like, you know, I showed her the video and we said, what if what if that was us in the vehicle? Right. Or our nanny with our children in the car and they get killed because a kid steals a car that they should have never. And I'm not condoning stealing vehicles. You shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But the fact of the matter is that it's incumbent upon manufacturers to take easy steps to prevent this type of thing from happening, notwithstanding the fact that it's illegal to do so. The analogy I'd always use is like, okay, well, bank robbery is illegal. Everyone knows that, right? Well, how many times have you been to a bank and there's bulletproof glass up between you and the teller? Well, what's that designed to do? It's designed to prevent bank robberies, right? It's not required. It's just done so that you deter further foreseeable criminal activity. And that, I think, especially when you look at just the swaths of manufacturers that have taken this easy step to install immobilizers and make sure this isn't happening, and Kia and Hyundai didn't. And that really set me over the edge in terms of this is the right thing to do, and we need to do this, because you don't even need to be an owner of a Kia or a Hyundai to have your life turned upside down because of being in the wrong place in the wrong time, notwithstanding the tens of thousands of people that bought the vehicles and had no idea that this thing wasn't equipped with basic, basic anti-theft measures that have just caused so many problems when they get their cars stolen. I can't tell you how many single moms I've talked to that couldn't end up bringing their kids to school or almost lost their job because they literally woke up one morning and their car's not there and then they had to stop and deal with that. And then there was the parts because so many of them were getting stolen were on back order. So they couldn't get their car back for months and months and months and months on end. And what are, the, what are you supposed to do? Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. Literally, we're getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pings where we could see, oh, look, this person bought a brand new vehicle and is still having this problem. Attorney James Barton talks about putting a case together against two auto giants. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with attorney James Barton, 
and find out how exactly that lawsuit was developed. Once you made that decision, Mm -hmm. and it sounds like it was personal for you in a lot of ways. It was. I would say that it definitely was personal given the impact this had in our community. How do you get started? How do you put a case like that together? Well, a lot of research, right? I mean, any time that we're dealing with a complex case, it starts with our background. The benefit of handling a lot of commercial litigation is that it runs the gamut in terms of issues. So I had a lot of products liability experience, which is in many respects kind of what this is. And that dovetails between you have warranties that are given with the car, you have implied warranties, you have product liability claims that you can bring. And so you had to define first what the defect was. That was step one. So we did that. And then from there, we had some people contact us that were willing to serve as class representatives because their lives were turned upside down and this was just a horrible experience for them. Did you go looking for them or did they come and find you? Uh, Yes and no. They found us originally, a few of them. But we recognized also that we needed some additional class representatives, in particular with newer vehicles. And so what we did was the Office of Lawyer Regulation tightly regulates lawyer advertising. You're not allowed to in-person or solicit clients. And so we created a... (laughs) flyer that explained what the problem was. We submitted the OLR for approval, and then we kind of papered the town with Kias and Hondas all over, directing them to a website that we had set up. And once that was done, literally, we're getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pings where we could see, oh, look, this person bought a brand new vehicle and is still having this problem, despite the fact that Key and Hyundai were on record like, oh, well, we're looking into it. And so that's really where we wanted to find like the ideal few plaintiffs to help. And so once they filled out their contact info, they gave us authorization to contact them. And that's how we reached out and found an additional others. And then it kind of mushroomed into this happening all over the country. And so there was a second lawsuit that was ultimately filed about a year and a half later out in California. That was nationwide in scope because originally... Were they in contact with you before they filed that? No, no. I'm saying we personally filed a second lawsuit. Okay. There were ultimately... Originally, our lawsuit was filed in June of 21 in Milwaukee County. It was then removed to federal court, which defense had the right to do under the Class Action Fairness Act so they could be in federal courts of the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Then our complaint was amended in November of 21, but still limited it to a... Wisconsin class, because that's really where it was happening. I mean, in 2021, it hadn't proliferated all over because the Kia TikTok challenge, which kind of really mushroomed this problem all over the place, didn't really start until the following, I would say, spring of 22 is really where it picked up. And then all of a sudden we noticed on that same website that we were getting contacted from people in St. Louis and Minneapolis and in all of these other states. And so that's really where we kind of take a step back. And you're like, this isn't just a Wisconsin problem. This is now a nationwide problem. And so that's what prompted us to ultimately file another lawsuit. And in the interim, our first lawsuit was filed under seal because we were concerned about... What does that mean when you say it was filed under seal? So what it means is that normally court proceedings are supposed to be open and transparent. It's a First Amendment issue because you can't litigate cases in secret. However, there are certain circumstances where a court with authorization will allow a litigant to file a case under seal. So think about like a trade secret. Obviously, a trade secret is a secret for a reason. But if someone steals that trade secret and you need to sue that person, you don't want to have to, in order to prove your claim, 
publish what the trade secret is that was stolen. So if someone steals the formula for Coca-Cola, for instance, Coca-Cola is not going to sue and then have a publicly available pleading that actually describes in detail what its trade secret was that was stolen. And so in a case like that, the aspects of the case can be filed under seal, whether it's the whole complaint or at least portions of it, which are ultimately redacted. And so in this case, we filed it under seal and we said, look, judge, first in Milwaukee County and then in the Eastern District, we said, this is a huge problem that the detail of our pleadings essentially would give anybody a playbook on how to steal these vehicles. And we don't want to exacerbate the problem, whether it be beyond in Milwaukee or in other municipalities in our state or across Wisconsin's border and down into Chicago. And so the judge took the very unique step, both judges did, and said, we agree. Given the detail of the allegations in the complaint, we're going to seal this, but recognize these competing balances between having open, transparent court proceedings and not exacerbating a public safety crisis, the court ordered us to come up with a suitable set of redactions with Kia and Hyundai with the other side. And so that version of the pleadings was eventually filed in July. And so of our, it ended up being like a 170 page complaint, there were certain aspects of it that were redacted. Um, but you could ultimately figure out, and, and just like we reverse engineered the problem, we attached a bunch of exhibits to our complaint that were publicly available records that you could reverse engineer, I think, what was ultimately in these redacted portions as well. On the other hand, a lot of the kids who are stealing Hyundais aren't looking at legal papers. No, they're not. They're not. My concern was more so the media, that the media reports on a publicly available document and then someone sees it on the news or they have a copy of it hyperlinked and then it becomes a concern. And that's why for a long time, despite being a young, growing firm, and obviously we felt like we were doing something good, we stayed out of the limelight intentionally. We got contacted by a bunch of media personalities to be interviewed about this. And we said, look, we just can't because it's under seal. And how would it look if I'm grandstanding in the media about hey, this problem and this problem, and yet I'm telling the court that it needs to be sealed. So I just can't talk about it. I'm sorry. But once our redacted version of the complaint became available in July of 2020, too, that's when there's this deluge of copycat suits. And because every lawyer has access to a federal system similar to CCAP, if you're familiar with it, it's called PACER. But the difference between CCAP and PACER is that in PACER, you can actually pull the documents where you can't do that on CCAP. And so once that happened, there were literally copycat lawsuits filed all over the country about this. From there, there was a motion that was filed. And when you have a bunch of similar lawsuits that are filed all over the country, there's a federal judiciary body called the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation. And cases can then be consolidated and transferred to one judicial district. And so that's what happened here. And they were transferred out to the Central District of California in Los Angeles, which is a few clicks away from Kia and Hyundai's corporate headquarters. The American Distribution Arms, I should add. They are based both in Southern California. And so that's when the case was transferred out there. There was then a consolidated class action complaint that was filed in March. And the case was resolved or a preliminary settlement was reached in May of this year. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. There was this wrinkle here, right, where you have this intervening cause, if you will, that someone is stealing the cars. Attorney James Barton reveals, Kia Hyundai said, there's no problem.
You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is Milwaukee attorney James Barton, the man who filed the original class action lawsuit against Kia Hyundai. When you first decided to sue, you reached out, I'm sure, to Kia Hyundai and their attorneys and notified them of your intent, correct? Well, yeah, we had to because in the warranties for each of these vehicles, there is an arbitration provision that's administered. It's called Auto Line, I believe it is. And it's administered through the Better Business Bureau. And so we submitted many of the claimants' claims through this auto line procedure, and all of them were rejected. That's what I was going to ask you, is what was their reaction to all of this? There's no problem. There's no issue. That was basically it. This isn't covered by a warranty. These are third-party thieves that are stealing the cars, and we have no liability or problem as a result of it. Did you have any personal contact with them? In other words, conversations one-on-one or on the telephone with any of the attorneys for Kia Hyundai? I did. I did. One of the attorneys that was representing him is a very large firm in Chicago. I respect him. I mean, he's a very, very, very good lawyer. And look, he had a job to do. I understood his position. He understood my position <laughs> rather clearly. And that's what happens. In How these types dismissive of cases. was he of you? I don't know if he was dis. I don't. I don't know. It's tough to say. I guess that'd be more of a question for him. I think that initially they probably were dismissive of the whole lawsuit because there was this wrinkle here, right, where you have this intervening cause, if you will, that someone is, as they coined it, right, this is an intervening or superseding cause where you have this third-party actor that's stealing the cars, to which our retort was, well, A, that really gets in the world of, you know, torts and negligence, and this is a contract claim, and you can't use tort defenses on a contract claim under a breach of warranty case. And B, even if it did apply, it's irrelevant because... The law is abundantly clear that if you create a product or you are negligent in whatever you're doing, right, in creating a hazard, if you will, in some way, shape or form, and it's foreseeable that as a result of your actions or inactions that you're going to create this powder keg, right, to almost promote criminal activity, well, then, of course, you can be held liable for it. Right. And I mean, the law is just abundantly clear. So, for instance, if you are a hotel operator in a high crime area and you say, you know what, it's going to cost too much to put locks on the doors. Right. And someone goes in and then they get robbed at gunpoint in their hotel room because there's no lock on the door. Well, hotel operators say, well, I can't be liable because that was the independent conduct of this criminal actor. And the courts have been like, get out of here. Of course you can be held liable. You didn't put locks on your doors to stop what would obviously be a foreseeable consequence of something like this happening. And so the argument never got, we, you know, there was a motion to dismiss briefing on it. And ultimately our original motion, their motion to dismiss our complaint was never ruled upon. The case was transferred out to California. There was another motion to dismiss filed in like April. And then the case settled. So there literally has not been any issues, which I think is probably a byproduct of knowing, despite raising the argument that it wasn't a winner, if you will. So this was settled pretty quickly because the wheels of justice do not normally work 
fast. They do not. They do not. Much to, I hear it a lot from many of our clients. They're like, why is this taking so long? And it just, it is. I mean, it's it's just a byproduct of just the way the court system works. I mean, you look at cases that are handed down, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States obviously just came down with a bunch of very significant decisions, but you look like when those started, and it was like five, six years ago, or seven years ago, sometimes before they ultimately make their way all the way upstairs. Same thing when you have a case before the Wisconsin Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals. It just takes a long time. Were you personally ever discouraged? No, not really. I kind of knew. I felt really comfortable with the level of work that we put in on the front end. And like I said, I mean, I worked at one of the largest law firms, corporate law firms here in Wisconsin for a number of years. And while we did in commercial litigation, if you're representing a business, sometimes you are a plaintiff, sometimes you're a defendant, but sometimes we do a lot of defense work. And so I know what the game is, right? You're going to try and move to dismiss the case, okay, because that's going to slow down discovery. And so when I am on the plaintiff side, I always make it a point to show my adversary and the court, look, we've done our homework, right? I mean, we laid out in exhaustive detail what the problem is. We've cited to case law in our complaint, which is unorthodox. A lot of lawyers don't do that. I always do in many cases, simply because it's like, judge, it's not like we willy-nilly filed this claim without looking into what the basis of it was for. Here's cases that support our position. And so I was comfortable with it. I just know it's going to take a while to get resolved. And I was surprised, I think, that given all of the other procedural things that happened with all these other lawsuits and everything, that, that a resolution was reached as quickly as it was. I can't say on air... When I got notification of it, it started with holy and then a four-letter word after that. I I didn't think it was going to happen that quickly. I thought the case was going to get kind of duked out in the MDL for quite a period of time. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. My biggest concern since day one was that you have to fix the cars. Milwaukee attorney James Barton discusses whether a $200 million settlement is fair compensation to 9 million people. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to our conversation with attorney James Barton. I'm your host, Libby Collins. The settlement is for $200 million. Is that what you were looking for? We filed the case on behalf of Wisconsin originally and then nationally. So, I mean, my biggest concern since day one was quite simple, that you have to fix the cars. Because when cars are too easy to steal, there are these repercussions, this ripple effect that happens, like we talked about earlier, not just to the Kia and Hyundai owners, but also to citizens all throughout our state and now nationwide that are exposed to the consequences of that. And the only way to really fix that problem isn't through money. It's through some form of a retrofit of the vehicles. And so I was very pleased that that was a portion of the relief because it's one thing to just pay somebody to say, okay, sorry, your car got stolen. Here's the amount of your deductible or the, you know, the cost of the damages. But that doesn't do anything if you still have all of these cars on the road. And so that is a portion of what this $200 million is devoted towards is really, I mean, for lack of a better word, almost like a self-imposed recall of the vehicles to retrofit them to fix this issue. What if you were affected? Let's say I had a Kia. It was stolen. 
What am I going to get? How am I going to benefit from this settlement? Well, that is, I mean, first and foremost, if you still own the vehicle, the software upgrade is supposed to resolve any further thieves' ability to basically easily steal it in the manner in which they were, right? So knock on wood, that works. Secondarily, there's the monetary component. And to be honest, that's what's still being hashed out. There was something filed before Judge Selna in the Central District of California that kind of outlined what the preliminary terms were. But unlike a normal case where you have litigant A versus litigant B and they hatch out a settlement and then it's inked in writing, everyone agrees to it, everyone puts their guns away and goes home. Class action is very different in that regard because the settlement is brokered, but then it has the ability to affect, depending on how big the class is, in this case, it's 9 million class members, right? And that's all of the affected vehicles. And so the court needs to assure itself that the settlement is fair. And if anyone has any objection to it, then there's an opportunity to lodge an objection. If there's a segment of the population that, for whatever reason, wasn't really considered. And look, that happens a lot, right? I mean, it's very difficult when you're trying to craft a resolution affecting 9 million people that you dot the I's and cross the T's in one stroke and it's done. And so that's what's going on now in terms of what the relief is ultimately going to be. So there will be a component in broad strokes, though. It's kind of broken down as follows. For the individuals that got their cars stolen and totaled, right, you can further subdivide those into people that were sufficiently insured and those that weren't, right? And so there will be monetary compensation for those people. Obviously, if your car is not insured and you had more out-of-pocket expenses, it'll be higher there. If you still have the vehicle, well, then you ultimately have the software upgrade that you can get. And then there will be additional monetary compensation. In terms of how all the numbers are going to shake, I just don't want to speak out of school because the paperwork is supposed to be filed on Monday. And we just got notification. It's the parties asked for an additional 10 days to file it. So it'll be filed on July 20th. How will people be notified or will they be notified they will. if they are? are potentially going to get something for this settlement. Right. So in auto cases, in auto class action cases, I mean, those VIN numbers come in handy, right? And so ultimately, Kia and Hyundai keep a record for obvious reasons of the buyers and lessees of their vehicles. And once a preliminary approval is reached, everyone will get those cards in the mail. If you've ever been in part of a class action, you'll get something in the mail that basically says, hey, you might be eligible to compensation. And that's when they can go ahead and reach out to the relevant parties involved to submit a claim. Or if they say, hey, that's not fair because I have damages of X, Y, and Z, and that's not doesn't look like it's going to be covered, well, then they have the opportunity to lodge an objection because ultimately the judge that's presiding over this MDL, he has a wealth of experience in MDLs in particular. He understands the importance of getting this right and getting it right so that it is fair across the board for all parties involved. The plaintiffs, Kia and Hyundai, the whole kit and caboodle. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. My wife thinks he's cute, so that, that makes it easy. Attorney James Barton tells us who would play him in the movie version of the Kia Hyundai story. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with attorney James Barton. Let's find out if imitation really is the sincerest form of flattery. I go back to what you said at the early part of this interview, and that is that you and Josh mm-hmm. went out, you got those steering columns, you took them apart, you figured it out. You were the first firm mm-hmm. 
to file this action. Yes, we were. Yet there have been at least 60 copycats. There are probably more copycats coming. I think I saw New York City just filed and a few other places. Will your firm be compensated more than the firms that represented on these copycat cases? You know, that remains... Because you did the legwork. Yeah, I mean, that remains to be seen. In a class action, the attorney's fees are always negotiated separately and after the fact. And the reason that's done is to prevent this hint of unfairness between plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel. And so we were not appointed to leadership. Some of the largest class action firms in the country were after this was done. And so they're kind of quarterbacking that now. Yeah, what I think that we should be compensated fairly for our efforts. Yeah, I do. But at the end of the day, that's not why we filed the lawsuit to begin with. It's really about helping our community because it was literally under siege and remains that way to this day. But everybody's got an ego. Does it bother you that some of these names from these large firms that have handled other class actions are going to get the credit, at least on a national basis, that they led that when you were the guy who said, wait a minute, you know, my family could be affected by this. People I know are being affected by this. And you did the legwork. How frustrating is that to you? Well, I mean, it's cliche, and I've never used the phrase probably before this case, but imitation is the best form of flattery, right? You know, I have a wealth of respect for the lawyers that were ultimately appointed before lawyers that were appointed on leadership. They're fantastic lawyers. And to the extent that I was able to help and play a part, that's fine. And frankly, we're not a Hoggins Berman, a national class action industry titan, you know, with $260 billion settlements under our belt. We're a small firm. It'd be nice to get there one day. But at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is that any single one of these firms would pick up a phone call. Now for me, if I had another case to co-counsel on, I would think Kia and Hyundai surely know who we are. They certainly didn't before. They're like, who are these people? (laughs) Right. And so you got to start somewhere. We're young, we're growing. And at the end of the day, this is just one case. It's more important to me that we were able to drive a resolution. And I think that the people in town in Milwaukee know that now that we've kind of come out of the woodwork, so to speak, and we'll talk about what we've been doing for the past two years. They know. They know that we started everything. And look, I mean, you just look at our pleadings and look at the work we did. It's not open for debate. We started this thing 18 months before anybody else did. It's not like we had a template to go off of. But at the end of the day, yes, some lawyers have egos. I don't really put myself honestly in that boat. If we did, then we would have just broadcast this thing right away. We wouldn't have filed it under seal. It was more about the problems that we had and thinking about how this is affecting all these other people. And the litigation gods will smile down on us one day, however it shakes out. As we've been talking, I keep thinking about the Aaron Brockovich case. Yeah. That was made into a movie. If this is ever made into a movie... The Kia Hyundai story. Who would you want to play you? (sighs) That's a good question. Brad Pitt, because my wife thinks he's cute, so that that makes it easy. Yeah, he'd be a good guy. Maybe Ben Affleck, too. Josh would have a much better answer to this because he's a movie buff. He's forgotten more movie lines than I've probably ever seen in my life, but we'll see what happens. James Barton from Barton Surjack. So good to have you here. Oh, thanks very much, Libby. It's a pleasure. We've been talking with Milwaukee attorney James Barton. His firm was the first to file a lawsuit against Kia Hyundai. 
found out how a very personal reaction to an accident led to his developing the case by going to a junkyard and getting two steering columns. So much more to this story. And if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with James Barton, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family, especially if they own a Kia or a Hyundai. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.